This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to present the original radio broadcast from 80 years ago during the days of the war, with the occasional more recent radio program about the war. Today, we have NBC's War Telescope, as it aired on February 26th, 1944. The series was broadcast from London and offered weekly updates on the war every Saturday, as well as looking at what could be coming in the weeks and months ahead. War correspondent John McVeigh hosts this episode, subbing in for Elmer Peterson. McVeigh was one of the first American radio correspondents to cover the war in Europe, reporting from France before that country fell to the Germans in 1940. He accompanied the North African invasion fleet during the Allied landing there in 1942, and he was the first correspondent to land at Omaha Beach during the 1944 D-Day invasion. He continued to report from the Western Front all the way up to the fall of Berlin. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts to find links to past episodes and other information. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From London, the National Broadcasting Company presents War Telescope, a review of the war week and a forecast of possible developments to come. War Telescope features today John McVeigh of NBC's London staff, a veteran reporter of the European scene. We take you now to London. This is John McVeigh in London. Last week, I had lunch with the foreign minister of a small European country. He knew Germany and the Germans well. His country had, like so many other countries, been invaded and occupied by the Germans. Now, as the Allied armies prepare to rip the Germans loose from his country, restore liberty to his people, certain topics are preoccupying the mind of this Allied diplomat. He's typical of not only the people of his own country, but the peoples of other European countries. And because there exists what amounts to a European view of these subjects, I thought I'd tell you about them today. To do that, I'll have to go outside my usual sphere and speak briefly of internal American politics. I do so only because America's internal politics have a greater influence on European thought than you would think at first sight. This week, Europeans have been following the reports of the friction between the executive and the legislative branches of the American government. They noted the temporary break between the president and the Democratic Party leader of the Senate, Senator Barkley. These European observers noted the hesitancy of Americans as reflected in Congress, to face the problem of paying a larger share of war expenses out of current taxation. 
And it was with something akin to alarm that these Europeans saw both houses override the president's veto. I don't mean they are alarmed at whether Democrats or Republicans win the next election, or whether Americans pay for the war now or 20 years from now, but they are alarmed at the implications of American internal strife. In the first place, conflict between the branches of the American government means that no European country can count with assurance on any fixed American foreign policy. At international conferences or private meetings, the President or State Department representatives can't give representatives of European governments any pledge of American foreign policy in the years to come. Even if they did, foreign diplomats understand that with all the goodwill in the world, a pledge given today might be canceled tomorrow by either a new administration or Congress's refusal to endorse the policy. As far as my foreign diplomat friend can see, and he's been accustomed to watching such matters for years, America has not yet established any foreign policy that is not subject to party politics. Diplomats of foreign countries see, see no sign of an American policy that will be endorsed by the majority of Americans today, next month, and five years from now. This would not matter so much to the rest of the world if America were only a small power. The point that drives foreign observers to despair is that America is such a great world power that no international arrangement anywhere on the globe would be complete without her. America's absence would make any international pact or arrangement to maintain world peace a mockery. The first question that springs to the mind of a foreigner who attempts to shape out the general lines of the post-war world is, what will America do? Nobody knows. To the European mind, America at the present moment is a giant, studiously contemplating its own navel, instead of looking at far horizons and taking its rightful place among world leaders. An American observer over here can attempt to explain the political intricacies that handicap the builders of an American foreign policy. You can say that Americans are not yet used to thinking on world terms. That in spite of the fact that American armies are all over the world and America is committed to playing a vital part in world affairs, Americans still do not realize that a scrap over the price of Kansas wheat or state and federal control of soldiers' votes may have a profound effect on the future of, say, Czechoslovakia or Belgium. All these things are well known to the diplomats of other countries. It's the consequences that worry them, for they see world planning made impossible, and the fate of their own countries swayed by the internal conflicts of an America that is not aware and does not seem to want to be aware of its own strength. To the European mind, the only certain thing about American policy is its uncertainty. It is, of course, a historical fact that American political thought has lagged behind and not led actual events. In the last two world conflicts, America has inevitably been forced to enter at a time when she was neither materially nor mentally prepared. In spite of what is undoubtedly the best informed press and radio in the world, and in spite of the fact that some American leaders headed by the president understood the issues involved, European statesmen realized that there could be no question of asking America to help stop Hitler. The public opinion was not aware of the danger. Their greatest fear is that what has been twice evident will be for the third time repeated, that after this war, America will be so concerned in our own political affairs that she won't take part in world political planning. And once again, Germany may be able to take advantage of the confusion to build up a new force of aggression. The foreign minister I spoke of referred to Europe's plans for the future. Each plan ends in a big question mark. What will America do? Of what use is it for Europe to talk about food plans, reconstruction plans, when it seems evident that all those plans will have a direct effect on America. For instance, 
If Europe is to be properly fed after years of starvation, some of the experts here believe that the United States, one of the world's great food-producing regions, may have to establish a rationing scheme comparable with Britain's in order to produce the food to feed, say, the Greeks and the Yugoslavs. European observers ask whether America is prepared to face this question, to face stricter rationing in peace than in war. Without that knowledge, talk of feeding Europe is unreal. Can any American government afford to do this politically, say the Europeans? And if not, European starvation will continue, and the ground lie fallow for the seeds of new wars. Another question that haunts Europe is what kind of international organization will emerge? The foreign minister of the small country explained that, like it or not, all nations are part of the world community. Nobody can stay outside that community unless they go to the length Japan did up to the visit of Admiral Perry in the middle of the 19th century. But, said the statesman, for the city of the world, you must have a fire brigade, some nations of goodwill who will stop the fires from threatening the whole city. He noted that you wouldn't invite a man who is well known as a firebug to become a member of your fire department. In the same way, you wouldn't invite Germany and other habitual aggressive nations to become members of the International Committee whose job will be to stop aggression. The fear of Germany is at the moment the dominant feature of European post-war thinking. Europe is not certain what America and even Britain will decide to do about post-war Germany. You can talk with a Pole who will tell you he's convinced that traditional British policy has always been to back Russia against Germany and then Germany against Russia. The poll will tell you he doesn't believe Britain will see Germany completely finished as a European power. You can talk with European statesmen of various nationalities who believe that American capital will be used after this war, as after the last, to build up Germany's war industries. They ask whether the American government is going to control foreign investments, whether American capital will be channeled into building up the devastated areas of Russia and other allied countries, or whether American investors who still have holdings in Germany despite Hitler's freezing of those assets, won't throw good money after bad and try to make Germany the number one priority among the areas of reconstruction investment. These doubts about Germany add to European uncertainty. And in European eyes, there's been no definition of American post-war policy that has the support and approval of the American people as a whole. There has been a general satisfaction here that the smaller European nations are to have a chance to discuss and dispute the ideas of the European Advisory Commission, the organ of the three largest powers. Something like a year ago, the impression prevailed that America, Britain, and Russia had decided to try running Europe on a power basis. The idea seemed to be, we're the biggest nation, so we'll decide what's to be done about Europe. There was one reason that the bumbling Dalam policy in North Africa affected so sharply opinion in nations like Norway and Greece. It didn't spring so much from enmity of Dalam as from the feeling that Dalam's position betrayed the ineptitude of big power politics. It seemed to Europeans that we were swinging our weight about in a way that showed complete misunderstanding of European realities and European thought. People from Western Europe will argue with you that although the British and the Russians are less given to making idealistic statements unsupported by fact, they, like America, are still not experts at interpreting European thought. Certainly the thesis could be drawn that Russia and Britain don't understand foreign countries as well as some other nations. In such circumstances, European nations have traditionally used France as a kind of sounding board or meeting point for ideas, where the thought of Romania, for instance, might make sense to Americans, and Argentina's ideas made plain to Moscow. The downfall of France in June 1940 left a gap in international misunderstanding that was greater than the vacancy of a single nation. Just recently, however, 
the impression has grown that the three major powers are intending to give full value to the opinions of the smaller countries, that they're to be called on to play an important part in the remaking of Europe. These nations will undoubtedly make it plain to the greater powers that the prime necessity in Europe is control of Germany. One diplomat from a smaller country said, America and Russia can afford to make diplomatic mistakes. We can't. When Germany attacks Russia or a country like America, it may mean retreat in a long time before forces can hurl back the invader. But with we smaller countries, a German attack means all but extinction. That's why Europe's smaller nations will insist on a policy to stop Germany from ever getting in a position to start a new aggression. Yet once again, they ask, what is America's policy? This week's series of air raids on London have underlined the fact that Germany isn't yet beaten. The attacks were a confession of weakness for falling German morale had forced the Nazis to use precious planes of their overstrained air force against London instead of keeping them from the second front bridgeheads. But these raids have reminded Londoners that even though we are overwhelming Germany from the air, and that huge forces are being prepared for the European assault, Germany still has more than a kick or two left. The raids are slight and they'll, pre they'll prevent British overconfidence. And that's a good quality to leave at home when you meet the German armies on the continent. As far as the British experts can determine, the bulk of the Germans still believe that somehow or other Hitler can pull a victory out of the bag. The Germans feel it may be a diplomatic victory. At least they will hang on, in the, in the opinion of the best informed Britishers, quite desperately until they realize that they can't defeat the Western Allies. It all depends on the Second Front. A German defeat in the West might cause Germany to crack up quicker than even the continuous Russian victories in the East. As far as anyone here knows, Germany's chances of doing the diplomatic sleight of hand act are very small. But Hitler and the other German leaders may feel that a desperate gamble might pay off. The worsening of the Polish situation may give us a hint of the German plan of action. Against all moderate counsel, the Poles seem to have stiffened against the use of the Curzon line as a basis for territorial negotiation with Russia. It's also been revealed here that the Polish government's instruction to Polish guerrillas were less plain than at first believed. In other words, there wasn't any plain statement that the Polish underground must cooperate with the Russian army against the Germans. Certainly among some Poles, there's a greater fear of Russia than of Germany. One can't know what will happen as the Red Army moves into Poland, but if the Germans should take advantage of this to support an anti-Russian Polish underground, the consequences would be plain. Once the American and British armies have locked with the Germans in the Second Front, the realization will be plain that America, Britain, and Russia sink or swim together. We all depend on one another. But the Germans may hope that by giving us an initial defeat in the West, they may discourage us and cause us to blame the Russians for it, or by holding us and giving the Russians a major setback, they may hope to get Russia out of the war. Distrust and enmity among the Allies are the instruments that will work a German victory. It's as well to remember that. Once we start distrusting the British or the Russians, or the British or Russians distrust us, and the conditions for a German victory have been created. This union and misunderstandings between us and the smaller nations of Europe are dangerous, but disunion with our major allies is the shortest path to catastrophe. America and Britain, like Russia, must win this war. That's why the attitude of the Polish government toward Russia and toward Germany must affect all the allied powers in the end. You can see the danger inherent in the situation that might give Germany a chance to play upon and make important ordinary differences between the allies that are now not important. International cooperation is a tender plant that must be watered frequently with efforts at understanding the other country's point of view. 
Yet it has become so necessary to our own safety that no labor and no difficulty is too great if a sturdy growth survives the war and blossoms in the peace beyond. This is John McVeigh returning you to the NBC Newsroom in New York. You have been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war as seen from London by John McVeigh, NBC's veteran observer in the British capital. War Telescope is presented each Saturday at this same time, 1.45 Eastern Wartime, over most of these stations. This program has come to you from London and New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 